Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. For this show, I'm reviewing four brand new movies, two of which have been released in theaters and two of which have been released on streaming. And I normally start with a movie that is released into theaters, but this time I'll make an exception because the movie I'm about to review for you, the first movie, is undoubtedly going to be the most talked about movie of the week. So, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Pinocchio, the 2022 live-action animation hybrid that is a remake of the Disney original from 1940, which was only the second Walt Disney full-length feature animated film ever released. And the original Pinocchio is undisputedly great. It's probably one of the best animated films of all time. So why did Disney do a remake, a live-action remake of Pinocchio? Well, why did it do a live-action remake of many of its other classic films as well? Almost too many to name at this point. It's because Disney is going through a little bit of a phase. It's part nostalgia and another part trying to prove that they can remake great movies and they haven't quite proven that yet in my opinion the best live action remake of a disney film so far has been pete's dragon and largely that's because the original pete's dragon from 1977 was a decidedly mediocre film the remake of it was a much better film. So Disney has done pretty well when it's remade its more mediocre films and not when it's remade its great films. But with that said, this live-action re remake of Pinocchio is actually pretty good. I tuned into it on Disney+, Plus, expecting to be disappointed. And while the film was lacking in some areas, it was actually pretty good in other areas. So I think many people, in fact, a vast majority of people, especially Americans, are very familiar with the Disney version of Pinocchio. So I will try not to tell you the plot of the film. All I'll tell you is that largely it follows the plot of that movie. Not so much the... Um, 1883 book, The Adventures of Pinocchio by Carlo Collati. There have been other remakes of the Carlo Collati book that have been truer to the source material than the Disney version, but the Disney version is so ingrained in all of our minds that it really doesn't necessitate retelling. But I will tell you a lot of what worked about this film. First of all, I do think that the blend of live action and animation was almost flawless. I loved how they remade the puppet of Pinocchio to look almost exactly like he did in the 1940 film and not so much like a CGI version necessarily would. So for that matter, I really liked how Pinocchio was designed. And I also liked the voice acting by Benjamin Evan Ainsworth, who is not a household name, but does a great job in the role of Pinocchio and certainly stays true to the original spirit of the 1940 film. Joseph Gordon Levitt plays the voice of Jiminy Cricket, and he does a really good job imitating the original voice artist of Jiminy Cricket. Although I didn't like the design of Jiminy Cricket in this film. I thought Joseph Gordon-Levitt did a good job as the voice of Jiminy Cricket. I just didn't like the design of it, uh, of the character, that is. And the human characters are thankfully played in live-action roles. They're not played in CGI, <clears throat> um, CGI motion capture the way that Robert Zemeckis did with other films like the Polar Express, Beowulf and a Christmas Carol, which were, I mean, good films for what they were worth. I think that the Polar Express was probably the weakest of the three only because the human characters looked like zombies. But fortunately, Robert Zemeckis did right in casting human actors in the human roles, particularly Tom Hanks as Geppetto, who did, I think, a serviceable job and was probably better cast in the role of Geppetto than he was in the role of uh, Colonel Tom Parker in this year's Elvis. I also loved uh, Cynthia, Cynthia Erivo as the Blue Fairy, although 
I wanted her to make another appearance, and I was disappointed that she ultimately didn't. And she sang actually a really moving rendition of When You Wish Upon a Star, which was one of the highlights of the film. And when she disappeared, she doesn't reappear again. And that was very disappointing. Some of the other things I liked about this film were the probably what worked in the original film and were was, I thought, appropriately highlighted in this film as well. I, I liked how Pinocchio joined the uh, marionette circus. And there was also another really good um, casting here of a brand new character whom I actually really liked. There's another uh, puppeteer here uh, who's a young uh, woman uh, by the name of Fabiana, who's played by Kian Lamaya, who befriends Pinocchio and and also puppeteers her ballerina uh, marionette, who also in a in a strange sort of poignant way befriends Pinocchio as well. I thought that was a nice touch. I also really liked um, the probably the scariest sequence of the original 1940 film that I thought was remade appropriately here, and that was Pleasure Island, where bad children are lured and turned to two donkeys by the evil uh, coachman, who in this movie is played by Luke Evans. And the design of Pleasure Island was both wondrous enough to attract bad and unenlightened children, but also scary enough to repel those who, who know better. And I think that was probably the highlight of the film. And there was also the sea monster Monstro, who in the original 1940 film was just a giant whale. In this movie, he uh, Monstro was more like a sea monster, but I really liked the, the sequence of that as Pinocchio was saving Geppetto from this sea monster. So there was a lot more that I liked about this live-action remake of Pinocchio than I didn't like. I didn't think the heart of the original Pinocchio was was there, but I do commend Robert Zemeckis and the co-writer of the screenplay, Chris Weitz, for giving this movie some more dimension as well as some appealing and appropriate additional characters that the original film didn't have. So unlike when John Favreau directed the Lion King and more or less made it a shot for shot remake of the original Lion King, I think that Robert Zemeckis did something better with Pinocchio than other people who have put out Disney live action remakes. So I'd probably say this is my second favorite live action Disney remake that I've seen so far. It does pale in comparison to the original in that it lacks the emotional depth and it also doesn't live up nearly to, uh, to the original, uh, concept of Robert Zemeckis's best live action animation hybrid of all time, which is who framed Roger rabbit. But I thought it was good for what it's worth. And for that reason, I give Pinocchio my rating of a checkout. I think the animation worked. I think the reimagining of some key concepts of the original Pinocchio worked in some respects. The design of some of the animated characters, with the exception of the Pinocchio character, worked. And some really didn't. But you could definitely see that this movie gave the live-action remake of Pinocchio some some good things that stayed true to the original, some other things that worked well for a modern audience, but it's not better than the original uh, animated Pinocchio, but I thought it was good for what it's worth. But with that said, I am looking very much forward to seeing a remake of Pinocchio, not Disney's Pinocchio, one that is going is probably going to stay true to Carlo Collati's original story, and this one is directed by Guillermo del Toro. It's a stop-motion animated musical that's going to be premiering on Netflix sometime in December. I'm guessing that that film is going to top this live-action remake of Pinocchio in quality, but I don't want to build it up too much, but I expected to hate this version of Pinocchio. I kind of liked it, but I do acknowledge that it wasn't as good as the original film. But it could have been worse.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Medieval. This movie was released in theaters on September 9th, 2022, and it is the story of 15th century Czech icon and warlord Jan Ziska, who defeated armies of the Teutonic Order and the Holy Roman Empire. This movie is not so much a biography as much as an imagined scenario that is inspired by actual events. But the plot of the film starts sometime in the 14th century towards the end of Jan uh, Ziska's life. And it is when Wenceslas IV is the king of Bohemia, which is part of uh, a significant part of Europe that used to belong to the countries that are, or excuse me, Bohemia used to be, used to cover areas including the countries that are now the Czech Republic and Slovakia. And this being a Czech film, it actually takes place in primarily in the city of Prague, where Wenceslas IV is the king of Bohemia and the leader of the Holy Roman Empire at the same time. Wenceslas has received the throne after his father, Charles IV, but his reign is not as successful and the kingdom seems to fall apart under his weak rule. The most powerful nobleman in the country, Henry III of Rosenberg, keeps seizing power of lower nobility one after another until one of them starts resisting. The brave hero of this movie is young Jan Ziska, a knight and mercenary and future leader of the Hussite army. And this is a lot of biographical information here. And the truth of the matter is, the reason that I'm revealing a lot of this information is because even though this movie is supposed to be about Jan Ziska, it lacks a lot of narrative focus. At first, a lot of the exposition that I gave you is spoken and shown in subtitles. Well, it's it's spoken by Michael Caine, who plays the uh, the part of Lord Boris, who is a king who is escorted by Jan Ziska as well as several other knights and bodyguards to the Holy Roman Empire in order to be officially sworn in as king of his land. But then eventually Michael Caine's character gets to Prague, the kingdom of Bohemia, where Wenceslas IV, as the leader of the Holy Roman Empire, is supposed to officially swear him in as king. But then he just kind of hangs around there as Ben Foster's character, Jan Ziska, is um, escaping the kingdom of Bohemia and taking with him a woman um, named Catherine, who's played by Sophia Lowe. And as the movie progresses, you are led to believe that Jan Ziska and Catherine are supposed to romantically connect. And I'm not very familiar with Sophia Lowe as an actress, but here in this film, she was relatively forgettable. I'm more familiar with Ben Foster, who is an excellent and underrated actor, who should be a household name, but isn't quite yet. But this movie doesn't really do his his acting ability justice, largely because he's painted in very broad strokes. You're only supposed to presume that he and the character of Catherine are supposed to get together romantically, but they don't really have that necessary chemistry to drive the plot. Plus, this being a film set in the Middle Ages and Jan Ziska being a knight, you know there are going to be epic battles that take place in this film. But unfortunately, I had a really hard time distinguishing between many of the other knight characters who weren't Jan Ziska. They all were just very underdeveloped, and I didn't really care about them as the movie progressed. There is also another character who's trying to take over the throne of Wenceslas IV, whose name is Sigismund, who's played by Matthew Good, and he is one of those royal characters who's been obviously pampered since birth and has a smug smile on his face throughout the rest of the film. But other than that smug smile, which gives you the idea that he's the bad guy, you don't really get any other characteristic of him either. And as the battles went on, which were not nearly as ornate or as elaborate as the ones in Braveheart or in Saving Private Ryan, the former film taking place in the Middle Ages and the latter film while taking place by in a more common era, 
it still is one of the best battles ever put on film, this movie certainly fails in comparison. And the one reason that it shouldn't fail in comparison is this movie had a very large budget. In fact, of all the Czech films ever made, this movie, which had a budget of 20.3 million American dollars, is the highest costing movie made in the Czech Republic and, for that matter, Czechoslovakia to this day. So... They shouldn't have skimped on the violence of the battles, particularly because of their budget and also because the film is rated R, so they could have gone absolute at their bloodiest if they wanted to. But as the movie progressed, and I wasn't quite sure what the story of the movie is supposed to be, is it supposed to be biographical of Jan Ziska? Is it supposed to be about the trials and tribulations of him protecting Lord Boresh? Or is it supposed to be some sort of Hamlet-like story about... Uh, Sigismund trying to take over the throne of Wenceslas IV when Sigismund is not the right heir. It could have been about all those things. It could have been about the love story between Jan Ziska and Catherine. But the movie just takes on way too much at once, in addition to the fact that other than Jan Ziska, Catherine, and Lord Borash, the rest of the characters are largely very forgettable. And the love story between Catherine and Jan Ziska is not very interesting at all. Truth be told, as I was watching this film, I nodded off um, during it a bunch of times. And when all was said and done, the written epilogue of the film wasn't particularly very interesting as well. It told you that Jan Ziska never lost a battle, but in that case, if he never lost a battle, how did he die? That's important to know. I mean, if he died, you know, with his children and grandchildren surrounding him, that's very important to know as well. In addition to all the other information about Jan Ziska that is told through subtitles, but not shown on the screen as it should be. So Medieval is a savage film, but not as memorably savage as it should be. It's largely forgettable. It's not a terrible film, but Medieval still gets my rating of a strikeout because with all the bloodshed and the battles that you see in this film, you don't really know why these people are fighting other than the fact that they are knights and they kind of have to fight each other obligatorily. But unlike Braveheart, you don't know why the savagery is supposed to be happening. And the subtitles that give you a historical context feel like one of the most boring history lessons that you'll find. And a film that's called Medieval that has a lot of warfare and a lot of sword fighting and warplay shouldn't be boring, but unfortunately, it is. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is End of the Road, which premiered on Netflix on Friday, September 9th, 2022. And it's the latest film starring Queen Latifah and Ludacris, both of whom originally started off as rappers, both of whom successfully transitioned into film. But believe it or not, this is the first film in which Queen Latifah and Ludacris, who's credited in this film by his real name, Chris Bridges, are actually co-starring together. It's directed by Millicent Shelton, who is a black woman who has extensive directing experience, even though this is only her third feature-length film to date. She's directed several music videos, um, including but not limited to Aaliyah's Back and Forth and At Your Best, You Are Love, which was ones that Aaliyah starred in and also sang very, very early in her career before she was of age. She also worked with R. Kelly, Escape, Mary J. Blige, Robin S., and several other musical artists of note. Of the TV shows she's directed, there are so many, but just to give you an idea, 
She's directed recently episodes of The Pact, P-Valley, The Equalizer, which stars Queen Latifah, Lock and Key, Titans, Run the World, Mixed-ish, and I could go on. But the point is that Millicent Shelton has extensive directing, directing experience, and this movie does tell a pretty good story, although if you've ever wondered what No Country for Old Men and Johnson Family Vacation was combined, you are probably alone because I don't know who would envision those two movies being combined, but somehow this movie does combine the two films. How well does it combine it? Well, better than you would expect. But this is a high-octane action thriller. It does have some funny parts, but it's largely an action film. And it's about a cross-country road trip that becomes a highway to hell for a nurse by the name of Brenda, who's played by Queen Latifah, and her family, specifically her teenage daughter Kelly, who's played by Michaela Lee, and her young son Cam, who's played by Sean Dixon, in addition to her brother, who are her children's uh, uncle, who's played by Ludacris. And Ludacris is an irresponsible adult, but he joins... Queen, um, he joins Brenda, uh, Queen Latifah's character, and her two children on a cross-country road trip as they move from suburban L.A. to Houston, Texas, passing by Arizona and New Mexico on the way. And eventually they find themselves alone in the New Mexico desert and finding they have to fight for their lives when they become the targets of a mysterious killer. And I'm not going to tell you exactly who that killer is because one of the strengths of this movie is that it does keep you guessing as to who the killer is going to be and why they would target an innocent family like these people. But Ludacris's character makes some very dumb mistakes to get the attention of this mysterious killer. And also, they may or may not be aided by the auspices of the local law enforcement, including a down-home sheriff by the name of Hammers, who's played by Bo Bridges. But you know that the family themselves has good intentions, but you don't exactly know about the down-home good old boys who they encounter on their way to Houston, Texas, as this road trip progresses. And End of the Road, I think, is good in terms of bringing its original characters. In fact, I loved how the family of four here is well fleshed out. I especially thought Ludacris was probably the best actor of the four actors in this film, but Queen Latifah does a good job as well. And I think the first half of the film is good in that it keeps you guessing who's going to torment this family and why. Could their tormenting be racially motivated or could it be for another reason where this family who has good intentions is in the wrong place at the wrong time and certainly with the wrong people? And I think that the movie it, it does really well not only characterizing this family very well, but it also makes the location from through where they're driving into a character all by itself. I did think towards the second half of the film, the action was a little bit redundant, and I thought that the movie tied itself up a little bit too neatly, but otherwise I thought End of the Road was definitely a film that's worth a look, and as I said, it's, it's one of those films that combines two films that you wouldn't normally expect to combine, but I think that the tone of the film is consistent, but I give End of the Road my rating of a checkout because while I liked the characters in the film, I didn't think that the ending was particularly satisfying or ended on a very good note at that. But I like just about everything else in the film, and I do think that if Millicent Shelton directs another feature-length film, she could, if she wanted to, learn from the narrative mistakes she made from this film. But, of course, we'll see how that goes.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Funny Pages. This movie is represents the feature film directorial debut of Owen Klein. And Owen Klein, even though he's only about 30 years old, he's actually going to be 31 in October, he has had extensive experience in film so far. As an actor, he's probably best known for playing the younger brother of Jesse Eisenberg in the movie The Squid and the Whale, which is a, a harrowing film, but also a very good film that was directed back in 2005 by Noah Baumbach. But Owen Klein is also the son of actors... Kevin Klein and Phoebe Cates, the former of whom is an Academy Award winner. And this film, Funny Pages, it was not brought to my attention when I was watching the film that the son of Kevin Klein was directing this film, because truth be told, this is a film that feels very raw. It felt it feels actually like early Kevin Smith probably with more jagged edges, but also I would compare this to the films of perhaps Larry Clark, or as I mentioned, early Noah Baumbach as well. It's a film that's very raw and tells the story probably of a way in which Owen Klein himself did not actually grow up. But for him to have the movie connections that he he has, and he could have made a big-budget film and had his father call people who knew some people who knew other people in Hollywood and made a big budget film with A-listers in the acting roles as well. And chances are it wouldn't have been nearly as good as Funny Pages is. So let me just tell you a little bit about the movie Funny Pages. It is a bitingly funny coming-of-age story. And when I say bitingly funny, you can feel the bites more than you can feel the laughs. But it is about a teenage cartoonist whose name is Robert, and he's played very well in this film by a young actor named Daniel Zoghadri. And Robert is a senior in high school who is a very talented cartoonist. And he draws pictures that are reminiscent of Robert Crumb. In fact, they're probably uh, better than Robert Crumb's drawings. I don't know if Daniel Zoghadri... Um, actually drew the pictures in this film, but if he did, all the power to him. But he rejects the comforts of his suburban life in a misguided quest for soul. So you learn as the film progresses that he lives a comfortable upper middle class um, life with his parents, Jennifer, who's played by Maria Dezia, and Louis, his father, played by Josh Pais. And Robert makes some very, very poor decisions when it comes to trying to assert his independence. At first, he is considering going to art school, but then when he experiences the trauma of his encouraging art teacher getting killed right in front of him, through no fault of Robert's own, by the way, he makes the dubious decision to drop out of high school and move to Trenton, New Jersey. And at first he gets a decent paying job as a receptionist for a court appointed attorney, but he makes bad decision after bad decision. First, when he moves into a basement apartment for which he pays $350 a month for rent. And while that doesn't sound like a bad deal for rent, in fact, in this age of growing inflation, this might be a really good price for rent. However, He moves into uh, a basement apartment that he has to share with two other people and also with an overactive uh, boiler, which is not only a fire hazard in and of itself, but it also makes his living existence very hot as well. I've lived in basement apartments before. The one in this film is truly godforsaken. But he also befriends a mentally disturbed older gentleman by the name of Wallace, who's played by Matthew Mayer. And Matthew Mayer is kind of a combination between Paul Giamatti and Brian Posehn in terms of his looks. And he has a very grating voice. But the reason that Robert befriends Wallace, even though he is very much down in his luck, is because Wallace had experience in 
the comic book industry. He used to work as a as an assistant colorer colorer for an underground comic book. And Robert tries to get advice from Wallace about the comic book industry, despite the fact that A, Robert has clearly more talent for being a an artist, not to mention a comic book artist, than Wallace does. And B, Wallace has not only a grading personality, but also he tells Robert that his role in this comic book um, ro- um, industry was more technical than it was artistic or creative. And the more that Robert goes down this rabbit hole of befriending the wrong type of people living in the wrong area of New Jersey and also being rebellious against his parents, really without a clue, the more you feel for him. But the trials and tribulations that Robert goes through as presumably a 17 or 18-year-old who tries to strike out on his own with very little experience in the real world is very misguided and frankly very stupid. But it is all too real because Robert needs guidance that he is not getting in this film. And the guidance he's getting is from the wrong type of people. Granted, he should be getting his guidance from his parents. And I think any full-fledged adult would be able to grab him by the shoulders and scream that in his face. But being 17 or 18, he does have an underdeveloped mind. And that's probably one of the big reasons that Funny Pages is... Definitely my favorite film that I've seen so far this week. It may also be one of my favorite films of the year. It's very well done on a very low budget, but it feels real. I felt less like I was watching actors, even though there are some familiar actors in here who aren't A-listers, but I've seen them in other things like Maria Dizia and Josh Pais. I've seen in several films over the last 30 years. But I felt more like I was watching a documentary, and it was very, very uncomfortable to watch this film as well. Also, I should note that Funny Pages takes place on and around Christmas time. But I warn you, I am recommending you see this film, but do not watch this film at Christmas. I repeat, do not watch this film at Christmas. This is up there with The Lodge and Ben is Back as films that take place around Christmas time and also include Brazil in that category as well. But whether you love Christmas, especially if you love Christmas, but even if you hate Christmas, don't watch this film at Christmas time because it is really uncomfortable and it sucks the spirit out of Christmas as well. And even though I am a sucker for Christmas... I am recommending this film for any other time of the year besides Christmas and maybe Thanksgiving too, because it is extremely well done. It is, I I think I would compare this favorably to The Graduate. First of all, I'll just say it right now. Funny Pages gets my rating of a knockout. It is very well acted. It's very raw and uh, director Owen Klein also wrote the screenplay to this story as well. Where he got the inspiration for these characters, I don't exactly know, but he got them in the right places, whether they were peers he went to high school with or if he collaborated with other filmmakers for inspiration. I don't know. But for a kid who, or for a filmmaker who grew up on the right side of Hollywood or the more glamorous side of Hollywood, he made a film that was really raw and unnerving. And I couldn't take my eyes off of it for one second, including some of the most gruesome parts of this film as well. But the acting by just about everyone involved is stellar. I think that Matthew Mayer stood out the most as a very unlikable loser. And also Daniel Zolgadri turned in a great performance here, definitely anchoring the film, which is very hard to do, especially given the other acting talent involved and his limited experience as an actor. But I was very impressed by Funny Pages. This is an even more raw version of The Graduate, the film to which I compare it very favorably. Because like The Graduate, you have a protagonist here who is very ill-experienced in the real world, and he makes some very, very dumb decisions. But the point of the film is not that the 
protagonist learns a lesson in the end. The lesson of the film or the the lesson of the film is the journey. The journey is the message. It's a film. It, it's a story where the protagonist makes some very, very dumb decisions, but he also grows as the film progresses where he ends up is kind of in the same realm as where Dustin Hoffman's character in the graduate also ended up, but it's fitting given the context of the story. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into what's coming up next. This is a spoken word segment of movies that are subject to being released in theaters for the week of September 12th through September 16th. 2022. And there are a lot of films that are being released in theaters alone. I don't even know if I'm going to get through all of them, but what I will do is I will get through the ones that you are most likely to see in a local multiplex near you just to save time. There is one film that's being released in limited release only in theaters on September 13th. That's a Tuesday, which is an odd time for a movie to be released, but this movie might actually break box office records for a limited release. The movie is Clerks 3, which is directed by and written by Kevin Smith. And... Kevin Smith made his directorial debut with the low, 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 low budget film Clerks back in 1994. And that was not an instantaneous hit, but it was picked up for Sundance in that same year. And it became more and more of a cult classic as it was released on video and distributed by Miramax. And as we all know, Kevin Smith did not stop there in terms of being a director, but He directed the sequel to Clerks, which was called Clerks 2, in 2006. And Clerks 2 was okay. It had some funny moments, but for me, it actually tried way too hard. And Kevin Smith's films ever since Clerks have been largely hit or miss. I think the films that he directed from 1994 to 2004 were almost flawless. Clerks, of course, is a film that's of an acquired taste, but once you get that acquired taste, it's pretty good. Mallrats is a film that also bombed at the box office, but as that made its rounds in home video, I think that Kevin Smith's reputation as a film director, and especially as a comedy director, grew. And then Chasing Amy, of course, was probably his breakthrough movie. That probably turned in one of Ben Affleck's best performances, and that's saying a lot. He also made Dogma, which is an even bigger hit. He returned uh, to Jay and Silent Bob with Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, which was originally going to be the last Jay and Silent Bob movie, but as he was, as Kevin Smith was creating the special edition DVD of Clerks, he brought back Jay and Silent Bob and Clerks 2. But that was after directing Jersey Girl, which also starred Ben Affleck, which I thought was a better film than a lot of people gave it credit for being. Its only liability was the fact that it starred Ben Affleck and co-starred Jennifer Lopez, both when, A, they were experiencing ruts in their careers, and B, when a lot of people were sick of reading about them in the tabloids, and this was just a reminder of another project they did after... Geely, which is considered one of the worst films of all time. But since Clerks 2, Kevin Smith has largely directed films that have been either departures from the Viewisk universe or just of low quality. They include Cop Out, Red State, Tusk, Yoga Hosers, none of which I've actually seen. There was one film he directed in 2019 called Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, 
But I haven't seen that. I've heard mixed things about it as well. But Clerks 2 could be a, a return to form for Kevin Smith, but I can't guarantee that. What I will say is that I will see the limited edition release of the film, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There's another film that is subject to being released in theaters on September 13th, a Tuesday, which is called Unseen Skies. This movie is directed by Yara Boo Melham, and it's about Trevor Paglin. This is a documentary, by the way. And Trevor Paglin, a real person, travels through the desolate Nevada desert while discussing the motivation for his latest and most audacious project, launching a satellite into orbit. I don't know if this film is coming out in a theater near you. If I see it, I may let you know what I think. It sounds interesting, but I just don't know if I'm going to see it. A film that is going to be released on September 14th, which is a Wednesday, is The Retaliators. This is a film that looks like it stars some people you might know, but none that I know. The stars of the film include Michael Lombardi, Mark Menchaca, and Joseph Gatt none of whom I actually know, but if you know who they are, congratulations. But this is a movie about an upstanding pastor who uncovers a dark and twisted underworld as he searches for answers surrounding his daughter's brutal murder. Sounds like an intriguing film. Interestingly enough, it's directed by three people, Samuel Gonzalez Jr., Michael Lombardi, and Bridget Smith. But this movie seems obscure, so I don't know if I'm going to see it. But if I see it in a theater near me, I might change my mind. But I'll let you know next week. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on September 14th is a movie that's called MVP. This is a movie that stars Mo McRae, Nate Boyer, and Dina Shehabi. None of whom that I know personally. But on the streets of Hollywood, a recent retired NFL player who is presumably an MVP, is saved from scandal by a homeless veteran. With their glory days behind them, the two men bond in search of purpose and identity. Sounds a little bit like a film that's, um, you know, of a religious influence. And it's directed by Nate Boyer, who also co-wrote the screenplay. This might be one of those films that Fathom Events shows at Regal Theater's only once. I don't know if I'm going to see the film, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But I'm more likely to see the films that are subject to being released in theaters on September 16th, which is a Friday. The first film that is on my radar here is a film that's called See How They Run. And this has a very impressive roster of acting talent. It takes place in the West End of 1950s London, where plans for a movie version of a smash hit play come to an abrupt halt after a pivotal member of the crew is murdered. The movie is directed by Tom George, written by Mark Chappelle, and is apparently not based on a book written by Agatha Christie, even though it seems like one of those stories that Agatha Christie would have written. The movie stars Saoirse Ronan, Sam Rockwell, Harris Dickinson, Adrian Brody, Ruth Wilson, Shirley Henderson, David Oyelowo, and several others. So you have a very impressive roster of talent here. So See How They Run is a film that I am more likely to see in theaters, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that I will probably put on my list of I will definitely see is a movie that's called The Woman King. And this movie stars Viola Davis as a woman king. It is a historical epic inspired by the true events that happened in the kingdom of Dahomey, one of the most powerful states of Africa in the 18th and 19th centuries. Just reading that description gives me chills. It's directed by Gina Prince Bythewood, who is an African-American director. And some of the films that she has directed previously include The Old Guard from 2020, which I don't believe I've seen, Beyond the Lights from 2014, and The Secret Life of Bees from 2008, which I saw and didn't love. She also directed Love and Basketball. That was her feature film debut, which was added to the Criterion Collection um, a couple of years ago. So The Woman King seems like Gina Prince Bythewood's 
breakout role as, or breakout film as a director. And it sounds like a film that, or a role that Viola Davis was born to play. The movie also stars Hero Finds Tiffin, who I'd seen in an earlier film a couple of weeks ago. Also co-stars John Boyega. So this is a film that looks enticing. It is a film I will definitely see. And I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on September 16th is another film that I may get to. And it's a movie called Pearl. And this is a story about how Pearl became the vicious killer seen in the movie X. So this is a prequel to the movie X. And the movie X is a film that I did see earlier this year, but I actually didn't get around to reviewing it because I was kind of mixed about the film. I thought it was very ambitious. I It was bloody and violent and certainly a throwback to a lot of the savage horror films that were made in the 70s, like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I wasn't quite bring myself to recommend it or not, but maybe I'll give it another look because in addition to Pearl being released in theaters, and this might actually look like a better film than the movie X, X is also being re-released into theaters because movie theaters are suffering right now. And I'll, I'll just get on to a tangent right here. They're, they're suffering for, I don't, well, let, let me put it to you this way. They're suffering largely because of the fallout from the pandemic. A lot of people are going out, they're not wearing their masks anymore, sometimes to a fault, and fortunately, life is getting a little bit more back to normal, but COVID is still out there, and I think for that reason, a lot of people are reluctant to go back to the movies, but X is being re-released in the theaters, as I said, the latest Spider-Man film, Far From Home, is also being re-released in the theaters as well. That was one of the few box office hits of last year. So I think that plus Regal Theaters has filed for bankruptcy as well. So we might see some Regal Theaters, the second biggest American movie theater chain, second only to AMC. They might be closing some of their theaters recently, but I hope that's not the case because I would prefer to see a movie in the theaters as opposed to seeing it at home. But Pearl is a movie that I might see, and if I see it, I will A, let you know what I think on next week's show, and B, finally give you my review of the movie X, which I think I'll have to re-watch in order to really decide what I think about that movie. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for you for this show, in addition to giving you most of the big films that are coming out in theaters for the week of September 12th through September 16th, 2022, let me give you a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released on streaming platforms, starting with Netflix. On Wednesday, September 14th, there is an Italian film that will be released on Netflix that's called The Catholic School or La Scuola Cattolica. It is a movie that takes place in late September 1975 at a renowned Catholic school in Rome for sheltered upper middle class boys. And this school is attacked in what became known as the Circio Massacre. The film examines what triggered the violence. Although it's not a documentary, it is actually a drama with an Italian cast, including Bernadetta Porcaroli, Giulio Prano, and Giulio Focetti, amongst other actors. None of these actors I actually know, but this is a movie I might see, and I'm not going to promise that I'll see it, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. There's another film that's coming out on Wednesday, September 14th on Netflix that is a Netflix original, and it's called Broad Peak. It sounds like an interesting title or one that is 
sloppily translated from its native language into English, but it's a film that is probably Swedish, and it's about a man by the name of Machi Berbeka, I hope I pronounced that name right, who, after climbing Broad Peak Mountain, learns that his journey to the summit is actually incomplete. 25 years later, he sets out to finish what he started. That's a pretty incredible story, which I believe is true, because the genres of this film that are listed here include adventure, biography, and drama. So it might be a docudrama, and the lead actor in this film is Marcin Sharnik, whose name I'm not familiar with, but if this is a film that I see, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. On Friday, September 16th, there are a ton of movies that are being brought to Netflix, and I do not have time to go through all of them. I will tell you, though, that there are a couple of films that are not Netflix originals, and they're not new, that will be appearing on Netflix, and I'll tell you briefly about those. There's the movie This Is The End that stars Seth Rogen, James Franco, Jonah Hill, and several other people whose careers were made possible by Judd Apatow and Judd Apatow produced this movie, but he didn't direct it. It's a fun film. Um, and if you get a chance to see it on Netflix, I recommend it. There's another film that's actually a documentary and it's called travel and band Cretans Clearwater revival at the Royal Albert hall, which is undoubtedly a concert film. And it's probably back when Tom Fogarty was still alive and the remaining band members of CCR were not fighting with each other, or at least not yet to the point when they broke up. But I'm a huge CCR fan. I may see this film, but it's unlikely that I will review it. But if it's one of those films that came out recently, i.e. in the last couple of years, I may give it a look, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.